John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore it hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Following Christ has a cost. It comes with a price. All the best blessings in life come with some kind of downside consequence. Buy the perfect house. Take your dream job. Even having children. These are great blessings. And we all know they come with costs. Getting married. I mean, other people's marriages. Mine, of course, is only good. Only upside. Jesus has invited his disciples into the stream of Trinitarian love. By abiding in him, by loving one another, they receive his joy and live within the blessedness of union with God through Christ. It's an extraordinary opportunity, receiving the grace and love of God in redemption. It's the greatest blessing anyone can ever know. And as we see from this morning's passage, it comes with a price. Following Jesus costs you something, not just generally, but specifically. Your faith will have consequences, not identical to those of these first disciples, but of the same kind. The 11 disciples gathered here around Christ live in a unique time and place in redemptive history. They will minister among the generations who had first-hand exposure to the word and works of Christ. These generations anticipating the Messiah of God's promise should have received Christ with gladness. Much of what Jesus says about the cost of discipleship has details specifically directed at these disciples in the context of these generations in which they would minister. And broad theological categories are also part of the discussion. And it's through those that we learn how these disciples' experience foreshadows the kinds of difficulties that future followers will encounter as well, even us. Not every Christian will be hated as these disciples are hated. 
and certainly not by the same persecutors. But all Christians will be hated by the world. Jesus begins with the fact of that hatred in verse 18. Those who abide in Christ experience both a union of love with him and with other believers and the stark contrast of this hatred from the world. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. The if may make it sound like this could go either way. But if you read closely, you see that it can't. Verse 19 makes clear, as one scholar notes, the hatred of the world is a fact. It's not merely an assumption. It is. The world loves its own and hates all else. They hate Christ because he is not of the world, but of the Godhead, divine Father and Spirit. They hate Christ because they are in rebellion against their creator. They hate Christ because he's the perfect revelation of God, and so he testifies to the truth. And he testifies that this rebellion against God, the deeds of the world, is evil. The world can't abide him because he can't abide unrighteousness. And when he speaks truth, merely by his incarnation, the incarnation of truth, he condemns them. They hate holiness, so they hate Christ. They hate even the idea of a God who has lordship over them, a God to whom they have obligations. And they even hate, believe it or not, God's offer of grace and mercy in Christ. Because that offer presumes that they need grace and mercy. It presumes that they're guilty. And their hearts are set against God and against his Christ. And so Jesus says their hearts are set against all those who abide with Christ. When you're trying to break an addiction or put a particular sin to death, sometimes the harshest critics will be those who are enslaved to that sin themselves. They don't want to see you break its hold on you, and they resent your admission that it represents your enslavement to sin. Another pastor writes, Former rebels who have, by the grace of the king, been won back to loving allegiance are not popular with those who persist in rebellion. You've experienced this. When you refuse to employ your tongue in merciless criticism or private slander of your spouse or your children, those who will not tame their tongues will hate you. When you decline to participate in a group discussion that is lustful and demeaning, those who freely adulter will hate you. Kids, when you refuse to make fun of the kid who is less cool or even just the different kid, those who put others down to puff themselves up will train their sights on you next. Now, We don't behave differently from the world so that we can revel in self-righteousness and compare ourselves to others. God is not pleased with that kind of pride. 
But I have to say that while that danger of self-righteousness receives a lot of attention and criticism within the church today, I honestly don't see it very often. What I see far more often is a lack of holiness. The practice of real holiness is the practice of abiding in Christ. It's not about showing anyone up. It's not about putting ourselves on a pedestal. It's about walking with Jesus in faith, even when there's a cost to it. This walk, abiding with Christ out of gratitude and joy for his goodness to us, this is a powerful testimony to the gospel. And as one of the reformers said, the gospel can't be publicized without instantly driving the world to rage. If you walk with Christ, you'll make the world mad. And they'll call you self-righteous. And you should examine yourself and see if you're being self-righteous. But don't be surprised when the world is angry if what you're actually being is holy, walking with Jesus. He tells his disciples that when the world hates them, they're in good company. The world hated him first. If they were like the world, if they were willing to think and speak and act like the world, the world wouldn't have a problem with them. It's their choice to walk with Christ. It's their choice to abide in his word and to remain in him. It's their choice to love one another. That's what incites the world's hatred. When you're mocked for not being up to date on the latest thrill in entertainment, it may be the world hating you on account of Christ. When you're passed over for a promotion or work opportunity because you aren't willing to lie, cheat, or abandon your family to get ahead, it may be the world hating you on account of Christ. However, when you experience the world's contempt, know this. You're in great company. They hated Christ first. And if you're not experiencing any of this, you should ask yourself, why isn't my commitment to Christ costing me anything? If you are a servant of Christ, you're not greater than your master. Your experience should not be so different from his. The world divides around the gospel. The gospel goes forth and it is a sword of division. You love it or you hate it. And those who hate Christ hate those who walk with him as well. In the next section, Jesus unpacks the nature of this hatred. This section has a lot of specific detail about what will become the disciples' experience. Verse 21, But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. See, here Jesus identifies the root cause of the world's hatred toward him. They don't know God. And Romans 1 makes clear that this has always been inexcusable. It holds true today. The world does not know God because they suppress the truth. In fact, Romans 1 says they actually do know that God is. The evidence is overwhelming. It's even within them. 
but they do not honor him as God. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. They do not see fit to acknowledge God, so they exchange the glory of the immortal God for worthless idols. That's what the world in every generation before and after Jesus did and does. They are all without excuse. But what Jesus adds here is that this generation's is particularly without excuse. The generations to whom the disciples will minister saw Emmanuel, God with us. They, these Jews who rejected Jesus and will persecute the disciples, they claimed to love the Father. They claimed to await his Messiah. But they revealed by their words and deeds that they hated God's Son. Jesus did works among them that no one else could do. He spoke the word of God among them with power. He fulfilled many prophecies in their presence. They were the most willfully blinded people the world has ever known. All generations are without excuse. All will be held to account for their rejection of God. But because of Jesus' incarnation and his ministry among them, this particular rebellion against God is inexcusable. They rejected God by rejecting the one he had sent. And so Jesus invokes Psalm 35, which anticipated that the Messiah would be hated without cause. And it's a good reminder that even in and through the world's hatred, God was working out his plan to save his people. The price that the disciples will pay, as hard as it is for them, has a good purpose in the eternal plan of God. It's the other side of this coin, of the great privilege of being set apart from the world. When you are set apart from the world, do you think the world to like that? Do you expect them to think that's good? And remember how that happened. It wasn't anything of the disciples' own doing. Remember verse 19, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The Lord's own people have received a special blessing of favor from God, completely undeserved. And the world views God and God's people with contempt. The disciples will be hated very particularly by the generations in which they minister because Christ called them out of the world into himself and because they abide in him. After Jesus' resurrection, the disciples will proclaim the name of the risen Christ to the world and some will hear them and believe. It says that, but many others will hate them. They will be thrown out of the synagogues. They will face physical abuse and opposition everywhere they go. And for these disciples, that's just the beginning of the world's hatred. Peter will be martyred in Rome, crucified upside down at his request under the emperor Nero. Andrew was also likely crucified in Greece after taking the gospel to Asia Minor. Thomas was pierced with spears. Philip was murdered by a Roman proconsul whose wife had been converted by his preaching. Matthew was likely murdered in Ethiopia by the order of the king. An Armenian king ordered Bartholomew beheaded. James was stoned to death. 
Simon was murdered in Persia. Matthias was burned at the stake. Of these 11 disciples, only John would die a natural death. Of course, that on the island of Patmos, where he had been exiled for the final years of his life. Why did all of this happen? Why were these men martyred? Why did the world respond so harshly to what were just a bunch of itinerant preachers? All these men were doing was going from place to place, offering liberty for the captives. It happened because the world hates Christ, hates the gospel of Christ, hates the message of Christ, and hates the people of Christ. If you think that's overdramatic or only true with qualifications, I would suggest you're either very insulated from the world or not very bold in your witness for Christ. Remember last week when Jesus emphasized that the disciples were now not just servants but his friends? And part of that distinction was that friends are told what is going on and how to obey and why things are happening. That's what Jesus does here. It's how he concludes this passage, the response to the hatred. Verse 26, but when the helper comes, whom I'll send you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness. The hate, the persecution, it's going to come. How should the disciples respond? The answer is closely tied, as one scholar observes, to another point that cries out for clarification, which is if Jesus is going away, why is the confrontation with the world going to continue? Why isn't it just out of sight, out of mind, when Jesus returns to the Father? And Jesus says that it will continue both because of who will come and because of what the disciples will do when he comes. Who will come is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. And Jesus says, the Spirit will bear witness about me. The world who hates Christ certainly hates the Spirit of God testifying about Christ. The Spirit testifies against the world. The Spirit convicts of sin. The Spirit illuminates our need for forgiveness and imputed righteousness. And the Spirit protects and prospers the church. The Spirit comforts the people of Christ in their persecution. The world hates the Spirit because everything the Spirit does is to the glory of Christ and to the good of Christ's people. And because the Spirit comes, the hatred of the world continues. But there's also an imperative here in Jesus' words. And the following of that keeps the world's hate alive as well. He says to the disciples, you also will bear witness. It's an imperative. They must testify. They must testify because the Spirit testifies and the Spirit is within them. They must testify because they were with Christ from the beginning. Like the world, they heard the truth of Christ. They saw the works of Christ But unlike the world, they did so with the eyes and the ears of faith. They saw and heard the ministry of Christ with hearts that had been given new birth by the Spirit of God. 
And the result of that glorious redemption is that they abide in Christ. And they love one another. And now they testify to the world. Their witness to Christ is their response to the world's persecution and hatred. And a believer's witness to Christ is as essential to our faith, as inextricably connected, as is our love for one another. When you abide in Christ, you will love one another and you will witness to the world. That's what it is to abide in Christ. And it will not be easy. Jesus tells them that he's giving them advance notice of the hate because apostasy and not death is the real danger. If they are to remain in him when this persecution comes, he must prepare them for the persecutions that lie ahead. And you might think that what they should be prepared for is doing whatever it takes to avoid the violent deaths that await them. If I told you about this future and said, what do you need to do to get ready? You and I, our first thoughts would be, what do I need to get ready to not get killed by these God-hating maniacs? But Jesus disagrees. That's not what he prepares them for at all. The worst thing that can happen to them It's not that they die. It's that they fail to remain in him. What's worse, for this generation at least, is that the harshest persecution they face will come from the religious rulers who actually believe that what they're doing honors God. And they do this, Jesus says, because they don't know the Father. They think they do. And when they persecute the disciples, they will believe, as they did when they persecuted Christ, that they are doing the work of God. Do you know how discouraging it could be to be on the other end of that? The self-doubt would creep in, wouldn't it? Am I doing what's right? If I'm standing for Christ, why is it so hard? Why is the opposition so fierce? Why is nothing going my way? And it would be easy to fall away. And so Jesus prepares them, not for their death, but for this, for that moment when their instinct is to turn and run. Those who persecute them are not serving God, Jesus says. They don't know God, and they don't worship God. What they know and worship is a false God, an idol of their own making. This God affirms their choices and their preferences. This God does not call on them to change. This God defines rightness by their wants rather than by his nature. The biggest temptation the disciples will face when confronted with persecution and hatred from these idolaters, is that they will abandon their own witness to Christ. Maybe they give in to the world's ideas and loves and just become one with the world. Or maybe they remain silent when they should speak. So Jesus tells them to be ready. The hatred will come. 
The idolaters will look to see how those who say they believe respond under this pressure. When that self-doubt creeps in, when the persecution of the world hurts and brings you to your knees and stirs up every fear and anxiety that you have, he has said these things to keep them from falling away. Much of this text is uniquely and distinctly tied to the disciples. They are time and place in redemption history. We will not be thrown out of the synagogue. We will not face persecution from those who put Jesus to death or be crucified sideways, upside down, or any other position. And remembering this, we should praise God for the faithfulness of Christ's disciples. Do we ever do that? Their witness, their, the God-powered magnitude of their missionary endeavors. That's why the gospel is so familiar and accessible to us today. The witness that God put in the hearts of these men for the gospel changed the world forever. Praise God for them. And while we cannot relate to many of the specifics of their persecution, we should feel and live within a connection to the spirit of it. The pressure to apostatize is still there. For some, it's the popularity of a dramatic and public apostasy. Publicizing your unbelief as widely as possible. But for many, it's just the quiet apostasy of continually siding with the world and against Christ over and over again. What is following Christ costing you? Are we living sacrificially? Are we experiencing the world's ridicule or contempt in any area of life? Are we missing out on opportunities or access to popular entertainment or advantages, not because we're being sanctimonious, but because we're choosing to walk with Jesus? There are plenty of blessings, good gifts, and joys that are compatible with the Christian life. But if we can't think of anything that isn't open to us as followers of Christ, we should think about our walk with him and what that reveals about our faith. Those who abide in Christ must testify to Christ. The servant is not greater than her master. And as we live, and we often do, with full awareness of the world's hatred for Christ, we can be encouraged. Like the disciples, we're in good company. Like them, we're active participants in the plan of God to save and perfect his people for his eternal kingdom. Even as we face persecution and the harsh hatred of the world, we can know that that is a a part of God's good and wise plan, both for our lives and for the testimony of his gospel in the world. By grace through faith, God has brought us into union with his son, and his favor is greater even than the worst the world can throw at us.
And when we struggle to believe that, we need to return to the gospel and to be reminded of the glories of the gospel. Abide in him, love one another, and witness to the world. By this we remain in him, not because we can do it in our own strength, but because these things are what he says his strength and his spirit will do in us.